0: now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, the other arguably Harrison and Starr, Cliff and Bobo. So, so Ken, of all the animals and potential cryptids out there, um, are you willing to say um, that any of them, and specifically which ones, are not real they don't exist this is nonsense
1: Uh, well uh i guess chupacabra is an obvious choice because again i just haven't seen i think it's a lot of different misunderstandings of of known animals and who knows maybe something weird or supernatural but i would say chupacabra is probably not a thing i know that'll that'll disappoint a lot of people a lot of listeners uh, the Jersey Devil, I think, again might be a composite identity thing, but I mean this—the notion of like this can- flying kangaroo type thing that that lives in New Jersey. I'm, you know, I don't put a lot of stock in that. Um, sadly, some of the cryptids that were considered promising back in the day are probably no longer viewed as viable. For example, there was in Africa there was something called the chamacit or Nandi bear, uh, which was described in. Uh, in, Ken- in Kenya, Africa, there was this, this giant predator, wolf-like, bear-like animal, but uh, most of those sightings are so old now, there are no modern sightings that I've heard of, but back in the day, that was like a, a, an A-list cryptid. Um, but, you know, any of the ones with the more kind of sensational or, or fantastic descriptions or characteristics, sadly, are less probable, um, I'll flip it around for you, and I'll give you like my top three most probable cryptids outside of Bigfoot, because right. you know we all know Bigfoot's always on the list. But um, the number one for me is the the thylacine or the Tasmanian tiger, which yeah. is of course a, a carnivorous marsupial. That's been, I mean, there's like a thousand sightings now from. Tasmania and Australia since it's a uh, pretty was,
0: good footage
1: too. Yeah, so there's the Doyle footage from the '70s and some. And I and moreover, there've been you know colleagues of mine like Richard Freeman, uh, who've gone down there and seen a lot of evidence. So I think that those probably are are you know definitely there. Um, number two for me would be the orang pendek, which I you know I don't necessarily lump with Bigfoot, but I think there could definitely be some type of unknown ape or bipedal orangutan or something. You guys probably have some. Having been there, probably has some good insight on that, but I think that's a very probable thing. Like, you found footprints, Cliff, so I mean, that's that's pretty convincing. And then number three is um, the Lake Iliamna monster from Alaska, which uh, has basically been described—Lake Iliamna is this massive lake in southwest Alaska, and there have been many, many accounts of these giant fish, um, giant silver fish that are like 20 feet long, and they could be landlocked sturgeon or— landlocked sharks or, you know, who knows. But, you know, I think when you look at a, a lake in, in you know, a very remote, inaccessible lake in southwest Alaska that's basically the size of a sea, well, sure. Why, why, why couldn't there be some giant 20-foot fish that are, you know, endemic to that lake? So I think those are those are all very probable cryptids along with Bigfoot. I think those are all kind of like the top, maybe the top four most probable.
0: Now, I, you know, uh, I did uh, um, this past June, I flew out to Lake Ilianda, and oh, cool. I, I, I filmed uh, an episode for some show that's going to be coming up. I don't even know the name of the show, but I did a, uh, you know, uh, two episodes basically for this show. One of the episodes was on Sasquatches and, you know, so we did some big putting out there. And then uh, the other one was on the Lake Iliamna monster. So I got to go looking around for that thing and talking to witnesses. And um, when I was there, I was privileged enough to see three videos of whatever critter lives in that lake. Mm. Um, one of them, it was hard to tell if it was something on the surface or if it was some sort of wake, a wind or a boat wake or something like that. The other one was a little bit more compelling, and then the final one I saw was very compelling. It's like, oh my god, that's not, a, that's not, you know, that's something living inside the lake. That's crazy. Um, and one of the guys who took the footage was basically like the mayor of a little town that I was in. Um, hmm. if it has a mayor. It's not really a, a, a mayorship, actually. It's more like a council person, but he kind of was in, in charge of the council. So, uh, yeah, it was very interesting and, and fairly compelling video evidence of that thing, whatever it is. And uh, the witnesses, one of the witnesses that actually got footage, uh, said that he saw it, t- like he thought there were maybe two of them coiled together, like these serpentine sort of things coming out of the lake. And um, yeah, very, very compelling stuff. So I don't know. I don't know the name of the show. I don't know when it's coming out. I mean, for me, it was a job. I got to go do this thing. It was cool. But. Um, you know, when that does come out, there will be some footage of that animal on the show, so
1: check it out. Very cool. I'm looking forward to that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Ken, I was up in uh, Washington about 20 years ago, and I was talking to the natives on the west side of the Olympic Peninsula on the ocean side, and I was speaking to them about Bigfoot stuff, and they, that was right when they first started talking to me, because usually I just got the cold shoulder, like, you know, get out of here. We don't talk to white guys about that type thing. Or they don't talk about it period back then much at all. But the one the one thing they did say was that uh well we've been having these river serpents coming up and they said, Yeah, these these large they described them as like giant eels, follow the salmon in when they come in, they ruin their nets. And these guys were poor and they had these I remember they said the nets were fifteen hundred dollars each. They were gill nets, they'd stretch across the river. They were showing me they had a whole pile behind the fish processing plants, this little village about a couple miles from the ocean. There's these nets that had holes shaped kind of like footballs and two two to three foot high. And there were, you know, a dozen or more of them in the net, like where they bit out all the fish that were in the net. And they said that they never ca- they had never caught one, that you can't catch them because their teeth are so razor sharp and they're so big. That anyone that's fishing for steelhead or salmon, you're not using a steel leader or anything. You're know, on the river like that, so you can bite through any any line, even a steel leader, so they can bite through. Because they tried to catch them with a uh, shark fishing gear, and it was no luck. Hmm. And they, you can't catch them in the net because they're eels. They can s- slide around and squirm and just and they can chew through anything, so they they could never catch them. But they had um, they had the net. I got to see the nets, and I I so should. I wish I would have. Uh, they they weren't too they didn't even let like me poking around back there like one guy was letting me look around the other people didn't seem too happy I was there but I just regret like crazy not buying a couple of those nets off of them you know because they were just they were just sitting there rotting and they didn't mend them there were so many holes in them but and they also told me one story about they had used uh, their anchors they'd use out there were generally uh, big like burlap bags filled with rocks, or they'd make like a wire little mesh cage and fill them with rocks. And they'd usually make them 300 pounds. And they watched one of them, they had, so they had uh, these weights on each side anchoring to keep them to the bottom. They'd put them out there, they'd dive in the summer when the water was warm and put them in and maintain them. And then when they sounded, they could just attach the nets to them. A bunch of them watched right, and the family had the nets right by there, right off the bridge in town. They watched the net all of a sudden drag up a hundred yards upstream against the current, and then then went slack. There was a couple of giant holes in it, but they said that you got caught in it and still swam. It was big enough and powerful enough to drag six hundred pounds of rock up river against the current. Wow, it's crazy. Did you know did the- you find that because, from my experiences, all the places in North America, as far as I know, that have these. River serpents and lake monsters is they connect to the ocean and they have giant salmon runs. Yep. Well, that's Sorry. also that's true it? of
0: Loch Ness. Yep. And uh, yep. that's particularly interesting in light of the recent eDNA study on Loch Ness, where they they turned up um, an inordinate amount of eel DNA that they didn't expect to in from the
1: loch itself. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, eels can get huge, right? So um, I, I'm not as familiar with the North American species. I know the conger eels over there in, in, in Loch Ness can get you know maybe seven to twelve feet long or something like that. So just friggin' huge.
0: The first I ever heard about those like river serpent things is was it back in 2008 when Bobo and I filmed that episode of Monster Quest, and we were the first white guys to go bigfooting on the um, on the Urok Reservation. And because uh, we were asking these the local native people, you know, who lives like without electricity, basically, you know, on the other side of the river, so no roads. And, you know, they, they call them river Indians, the ones that have to go like use a boat to get home, uh, that kind of stuff. And we're asking them. And I say like, wait, well, hey, you ever seen a Sasquatch? And several of these people said, no, I never saw a Sasquatch, but I've seen those river snake things or whatever. And what? And they, they, they started to describe them. And it turns out that, you know, they're all describing the same thing. And they all describe the salmon run connection and the big holes in the nets and whole nine. Then I started hearing about these other rivers and such on the west coast and um, kind of putting two and two together. I think that's probably what's going on in Loch Ness because it turns out there's a viable salmon run in Loch Ness. Yep. But when I approached Adrian Shine, you know that old dude with a real long beard that's in the, the old documentaries and stuff? We went out um, Loch Nessing with him. When we were in, filming in Scotland, and he says, "Oh no, it couldn't possibly be something like that from the ocean, because the river goes right through Inverness." But um, you know, it's a big old river, and just because it goes right through town doesn't mean that everything in the river is going to be seen, because uh, living here in the Pacific Northwest, if I'm kind of familiar with steelhead and salmon traits, and like these giant, you know, three-foot steelhead or you know, two and a half, three-foot steelhead and salmon, they go over very shallow parts of the river very successfully, but they do it at night, you know, when the predators aren't going to come down and get them. They can't, the, the eagles can't swoop down and pick them up. So I don't see uh, any difference in that behavior than what would be speculated for the giant eel things coming in from the ocean, going right through Inverness um, and into the loch. So.
1: Yeah, for sure. And Loch Ness is connected to the ocean on both sides because on the other side of the lock, uh, St. Augustine, I think there's like a series of, you um, what do they call those things? The locks, where they have the boats that rise up locks, and down, yeah. and and lakes, and so I mean the Loch Ness is essentially connected to the ocean from both sides, even though, albeit, as Adrian said, you know, shallow water. But I'm with you. I don't see the, why that would be a hindrance to something that was determined to eat as much salmon as it could. You know, <laughs> to find right. a way to, right. to get into that lake. So, and
0: yeah, they may not be 40, feet feet long, too. I mean. People exaggerate um, what they see, or they don't see all of it. They assume there's more of it, and you know these things might be only fifteen or you know ten to twenty feet long, and in which case, that's not really all that big at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I think that's a pretty sound theory. People do definitely overestimate things, um, sometimes by quite a lot. If if it's something they're not familiar with, and the adrenaline's pumping, and so on and so forth. So. Um, you know, it's viable that the, the estimates of the Loch Ness Monster through the years, a lot of those have been exaggerated, you know, just based on the excitement involved in, in the person having the, the sighting or the encounter.
2: People are horrible at estimating sizes and weights. I, I think the same thing happens in reverse with Bigfoot. A lot of times people say, oh, it looked eight feet tall and 400 pounds. But it's like you know, the thing, if it was eight feet tall, it probably weighed seven or 800 pounds, you know, people. Mm-hmm. The guys, I, the guys I like listening to, as far as giving descriptions of size, are bow hunters because they, they, they're, they're good. At, they have to know distance, and they're good. At, they're pretty good at size, that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I find bolt people go way too big, or, or they, or they mostly with Bigfoot, anyways, they underestimate the weight a lot. No, you're right. I, you know, that- I found
1: that too. Mm-hmm.
0: Now that we're ta- we're back on Bigfoot, I want to bring up Ken's new book. Um, Ken has a brand new book about Sasquatches out. Um, I don't have it in front of me. Was like everything you need to know or something. What, what is it called, Ken? What's the title? You gave it's me a called, copy of it. I've been reading it.
1: It's called the Essential Guide to Bigfoot.
0: Yeah, and you know it basically is. I, I um, the book I'm very impressed with it actually so far because um, it's not a primer on Bigfoot. And it's not so technical that people can't follow it, but it's a really nice mix of both of those things. Like, it would be an excellent first book about Bigfoot for anybody. But on top of that, people who are, you know, veterans of the subject, you know, like myself or Bobo or you, uh, can get stuff out of it as well. Uh, So, um, congratulations on that. Like, it's a very, very nice mix uh, basic stuff for the newbie and then other more in-depth Bigfoot 30 and 401 sort of class level stuff for the veterans. So congratulations, man. Good job.
1: Thank you, Cliff. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, the reason I decided to write the book about a year ago was that, you know, cause there's so many excellent Bigfoot books out there already, you know, some of them maybe a little older, but some, some also some good ones in recent years, but I'm sure you guys find this as well, but with the proliferation of the internet, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but with, with social media and the internet nowadays, there's just so much misinformation, bad information, and fabrications and things like that that are being disseminated, and sadly, a lot of people these days don't really think critically when they when they read an article or a blog or a post, they just kind of accept it all as fact, and uh, with regard to Bigfoot or Sasquatch, there's you know probably as much, if not more, misinformation uh that's kind of floating around out there. So I, I spend a lot of my time when people walk up to me and they want to talk about Bigfoot or Sasquatch and they immediately begin rattling off, you know, just falsehoods and things that they read online. And um so I just felt like, you know I felt like I had an obligation as a serious investigator to kind of push back on that and try to provide as much, you know, and granted, you know, we we some a skeptic might argue well how can you you know really be sure about anything with regards to something that's unknown well that's partially true but when you look at the foundational knowledge that's been amassed by investigators dating back to the 1950s and before and even in modern you know times you know guys like you and a lot of really excellent thorough investigators out there that I th- I think we've we've at least been able to I think build a kind of an uh, an archetype or an identikit, as far as what Bigfoot or Sasquatch, what we assume Bigfoot or Sasquatch looks like, how it behaves, and you know, I just I hope enough people will uh, will show an interest in the book, just to try to um, you know sort of separate the wheat from the chaff and, and 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 try to you know try to put more weight and substance into the you know the the theories and the uh, some of the ideas that we have at this point.
0: I really appreciate uh, some of the um, st- some of the stuff you wrote in the chapter of "Bigfoot Sociology," where you kind of look at some of the the various camps, shall we say, in the Bigfoot community, and um, and kind of dissect them. But and and you know, kind of debunk some, but you do it respectfully. You're not just saying these guys are kooks. You kind of go through and like, hey, well, here's a possible um, psychological phenomenon that is well documented that might be at play here in the Bigfoot community. Um, and I really appreciated that sort of aspect to it as well, because you don't really poo poo them. You don't like put them down or, you know, discount them completely, but you uh, steadily and respectfully just kind of disassemble that sort of perspective. And I, I do appreciate that about the book as well.
1: Well, thank you, Cliff. And that's a fascinating, and, you know, I have friends, as I'm sure you guys do, that are just total skeptics. Um, but are still interested in Bigfoot as a cultural phenomenon, you know, mm-hmm. Well, we don't, you know, people that think Bigfoot can exist, but you know, the, the fact that so many people are, you know, claiming that they've seen them, encountered them, or, you know, even people like us that investigate our lives to dedicate, you know, or dedicate our lives to investigating them. That's interesting to people that don't even think that Bigfoot could exist. But, um, you know, I did spend some time, um, putting that chapter together where I did interview a lot of skeptics and people that had, had argued against Bigfoot, uh, and also, uh, some forensic psychologists, uh, that, that dealt with, you know, different, there's a sort of psychological situations and things to try to get that, that perspective as well. So I appreciate that. I think, uh, you know, there are definitely some people and I, I try to always be diplomatic and not be unkind and dismissive, but, uh, I'm sure you guys run across this all the time, too, but there are many, many people out there whose claims are just so extraordinary and oftentimes seem to have kind of obtruse motivations and things behind them, too. And, you know, it, it, it's very fascinating and you don't want to be dismissive of someone that that claims that they saw something or encountered something or In in many cases that they're actually habituating with with a a clan of something on their property. But some of those cases may be true. You can't say. But, um, you know, the uh, the sociological and psychological implications of of Bigfoot are are quite fascinating, I think.
0: Yeah, you put it plain as day in one of your sub subheadings, if I remember right, in the book. You came out and basically said Bigfoot as a religion. And that's what it's become for a huge segment or a huge a, a sizable Segment of the Bigfoot community in some ways. Um, and, and not just for the obsessive people like me, you know, I, I guess people could accuse me of that as well because I'm obsessive about the subject. But um, there's this whole other spiritual woo sort of aspect to it. And you address that as well. But you also do it respectfully, which is a hard balance to maintain. I don't know. Because you, you, you got to be careful where you tread. You know, I've said things uh, about various members of the community that I did not mean any disrespect. I said it pretty diplomatically. I said, you know, like, well, good for them. I'm glad they're doing it. But yet still, like within a week, I was being torn apart on other Facebook pages and all this other nonsense because of whatever perceived threats I am to these people. You know, it's like, well, yeah, Yeah. I'm glad you're doing that because that means I don't have to. What's wrong with that? And it was nice to see it addressed in your book.
1: No, I appreciate it and you know that to make one more point on that you're you know the the people the Wu people tend to be much more defensive because of their you know beliefs because it is almost like a religion you know it's almost like if you attack someone's religion you know in, in many countries that will get you executed fairly quickly so I mean you know you don't want to ever be disrespectful of someone's belief system or their religion but I think that's why the Wu people on, on by and large are, are a lot more defensive and Perhaps um, a lot more aggressive when it comes to defending, you know, their belief in Bigfoot and and what they what they believe it is.
2: What's your most popular subject of the crypto world that you, that you cover? Like, uh, what's your best-selling books about?
1: Well, I think my uh, Encounters with Flying Humanoids is probably my best-selling book so far, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that. Um, Although people are generally interested in cryptozoology, I think more people are kind of interested in a case like Mothman or flying humanoids that incorporates not only a strange creature but also elements of UFOs and men in black and conspiracies and curses and all of these other elements of the unexplained. So, you know, that that may be the reason why. But um, I don't know. Fingers crossed it's going to be the Bigfoot book because um, I, I'm always – kind of fond of the late my latest work so you know i I, since i put a lot of work into it i just uh i hope people do at least give it a chance and um you know add it to their 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 collection of already impressive bigfoot books
2: i've got it but i hate this whole flying humanoid thing. it takes away from the squash (laughs)
0: let's piss bobo off a little bit more and uh what's your take on um on a dogman
2: no, no not pissing me off. I was just going to say the new rock star up and comer is dog. I mean, dog, man is just exploding. It seems like to me, dog, man, a- apart from the actual creature,
1: dogman is a phenomenon because you had, uh, and I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with the dog, man. It's basically described as like this giant bipedal dog headed creature, like a werewolf type thing that walks on its hind legs, sometimes goes down all fours, um, the first accounts that really became notable happened in like the late 1980s, early 1990s up in Wisconsin. It was something known as the Beast of Bray Road, which of course Linda Godfrey has written about extensively. And then suddenly you had Dogman sightings from Michigan and Ohio, Pennsylvania, Kentucky. And now they're all over the world. You have Dogman sightings in Australia, South America, Africa. And you're right, Cliff, it's exploded. There are websites, there are Podcasts that people listen religiously to—it's um, become quite a polarizing topic now. I view Dogman as kind of like one of those less comprehensible things, like the flying humanoids. I mean, the—you know—physiologically, phys- it's impossible for something to possess the features of a a hominin and a and a canine, you know, and combine those in any way. So, moreover, there seem to be a lot of really weird aspects to the Dogman. Uh, these creatures are supposedly hyper-aggressive, attacking people, chasing people, clawing at cars. Uh, they're suppo- according to some researchers, there's many different types. You know, There's some that are larger and uh, more aggressive and this and that. So, uh, but you're right. It's kind of blown up. I don't see it as a viable flesh-and-blood creature. I, I view Dogman as more of kind of a metaphysical, supernatural thing, kind of a manifestation of some type. That may take on physical characteristics at times, uh, but there's no doubt that it's it's an immensely popular topic that just kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, I'm I'm thinking about uh, I actually organized the very first Dogman conference back in 2016 when it was first taking off. We did a conference up in Ohio. Uh, myself, Linda Godfrey, Nick Redfern, Lyle Blackburn, David Weatherly. Stan Gordon and John Tenney, and we had a good turnout. A couple hundred people showed up for the first time to talk about Dogman, and we all kind of came to that same consensus agreement. All of the quote-unquote experts agreed that Dogman is some type of supernatural thing. Uh, But it's become so even much more popular since then that I'm thinking about maybe organizing a second Dogman conference. Uh, What's interesting, though, is that much like the Bigfoot field, you have these kind of subdivisions within the Dogman field – where there are researchers that just plain not only disagree, but just dislike each other and won't get together and won't be in the same building. And, you know, so it's kind of like, it's fascinating that not only has it taken off as a phenomenon, but now it's also subdivided into all these different categories and, and, and groups, you know, so it's, it's really fascinating.
2: Have you ever, have you ever met a <laughs> uh, Vic Kundiff in person that host Dogman Encounters?
1: No, I, I never met him in person. I did reach out to him when I was organizing the first Dogman conference and invited him to speak. And Vic told me that he prefers to remain behind the scenes and he doesn't like to uh, to speak in public. At least at that time, he didn't.
2: Does he, I was, when you spoke to him, you spoke to him on the phone or was it email? It was on the phone. Does he talk like that just normally?
1: Oh, you mean like his podcast? Yeah. Um. Man, I don't exactly remember, but I, yeah, I, I don't think it was. I mean, I recognized it as the voice from the podcast, so it was obviously the same guy. But uh, what he,
0: does he talk like? I don't. I think I'm missing out something here. Missing out on something.
2: It's a very like? distinctive style, delivery, cadence. Um, kind of uh, a
1: storyteller kind of thing. So.
2: Oh, so it's yeah. not the quality of his voice; it's the way. No, you, it's super distinct. I mean. It's no, he's, he's good. It's just um, like Howard Stern was making fun of him a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> you know, like they're good for Vic. Actually, that's a great exposure. So good. Oh, totally. well, it wasn't the best exposure because they're showing it as like kind of being wacky, but no, he got, he definitely got, he got <laughs> million listeners heard of, heard of dog man encounters. That's for sure. But they had a crazy guy was with a speech impediment that was doing the, the, Talking about Dogman, anyways. Well, you
0: know, I, it's probably it's probably good exposure for Howard cern for us to mention him.
2: Yeah.
0: I, I'm sure he'll get a boost in his ratings from this.
2: No, it, <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, I listened. I've listened to at least eighty of those Dogman encounters now episodes. That's that's where I get a lot of my dog. Not information so much. Just it's 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 not. Re, I haven't heard any researchers on there. It's just people telling their stories and encounters and. Man, there's some really compelling – there's something there. There's something to it. It's not just all imagination. And there is uh, some behavioral patterns. You can see these things, but yeah, they really freak me out.
1: Yeah, they're quite scary. And uh, one of the far-out theories that we discussed at the conference was that possibility that the dogman could be a tulpa. Are you guys familiar with that term? No. Uh, a tulpa is a thought-form projection.
0: Oh, it's a Jungian thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, the name comes from some of the uh, Buddhist monks uh, from Tibet and so forth that would uh, allegedly go into these deep meditative trances and were able to actually manifest physical beings and creatures with the power of their mind and to basically project them into the, the fabric of our reality. So based on the fact that Dogman seemingly came out of nowhere and now it's being cited everywhere in such great abundance. one of the the theories is that maybe we essentially, as a culture, as a race, as a species, created dogman with the power of our minds and that we basically willed it into existence.
0: There's something like that, if I remember and I haven't read the book, but Carl Jung, the very famous psychologist or psychiatrist, um he wrote a book about UFOs. Back in the day and if i if i understand what i've heard about it and again i haven't read it that's his basic premise on ufos as well
1: yeah i think i've heard that
2: it makes sense i mean for some of these crazies that's what i always thought flying humanoids would be something like that but but what i don't understand is that i can see like okay you can conjure up something but people that have never even heard or thought of dog matter are, are seeing them not people that like are obsessed with it then they you know, you got to be a lot more skeptical if someone's like really into dogman and all of a sudden they see one. Whereas these other people that I'm, I've been listening to, and like, like uh, Lee, Lee Kirkland. I mean, he saw one when he was 18. He never even gave it. A, he'd never thought of it once before in his life. So I mean, I know there's rational, logical, sane people seeing these things. And I was just wondering with that that theory of the Topa, if you have to be one of the believers or other, the fact that other people are putting this mental energy that conjures it up. I would think that they'd be the ones more likely to see it, but from what I'm reading or not reading so much is, but listening to podcasts is it's people that had never thought of it that are seeing them.
1: Yeah. Well, playing off of Craig's, uh, I'm sorry, Craig Cliff's reference to no offense, Cliff. (laughs) It's all right. Uh, I just did an interview with the Craig yesterday. So you look confused. Um,
0: I get myself confused
1: with other people all the time. Yeah, it happens. Um, playing, but playing off your remark of young, uh, you know, Carl Jung, he also had that kind of theory of of the, you know, the global consciousness that we're all somehow connected on an unconscious level. So maybe that would explain why, if you had even never thought of a dog man, if we're all kind of part of the same network. Uh, you know, that 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 seed is in there somewhere in our in our unconscious minds. But uh, it's all pretty far out cosmic stuff. So I'm I'm as a cryptozoologist, I'm typically uncomfortable delving into some of those particular realms, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that, that could uh, this is all psychology and like kind of the cutting edge or fringe psychology is another good way to say it, I guess. But there's that guy Rupert Sheldrake as well. Um, and he talks a lot about. Um, the more – kind of like uh, the, along the lines of the collective unconscious, which is the Jungian idea, that the more people think a certain thing, the, the easier it is for others to think that thing, even if they're unrelated. The more times you do anything, physically or mentally, the easier it is for other people to do that same thing. And I guess that's probably true to some degree, like guitar playing. You know, you, you look at Hendrix. Oh, and by the way, today is Jimi Hendrix's birthday, November 27th. Aww. Cool. Um, yes, you, you look at Hendrix. he was pushing boundaries all over the place, but now, you know, uh, you can pull off Hendrix stuff. Like if you practice hard enough, so it's like uh, kind of almost proof in a way that like the more somebody does something somewhere, the easier it is for others to follow in that person's wake. Right. But, um, maybe that's kind of a, 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 um, an explanation, you know, if, if everybody is starting to think more about the dog, man, and if these things can manifest physically, which I don't know if they can or not, but if that's the way the theory goes, and maybe that's the way – since more people are doing it, it's easier for other people to have it manifested in their own life in some way as well. Why Why not? What the hell? All right. Sure. <laughs> oh, I, you know what I wanted to ask you about? Changing the paragraph here, changing the topic. What What is up with these things they call rakes and not the lawn implement? I mean these little golem-like <laughs> monsters, You know, these pseudo-alien golem things that are occasionally seen or photographed throughout the world. What what in the
1: world is up with that? Do you know? No, I haven't honestly spent much time on the on the rake. That is, I mean, I'm familiar with the concept and I know people that talk about it, but I I've never encountered an eyewitness or really a, a credible account or sighting. So, um, but um, you know, there's there's other things too that have gotten kind of lumped in with cryptozoology, like the Slender Man uh, oh, yeah. and and the Wendigo. Um, Things that, um, you know, may have some basis in truth, perhaps either supernatural or rooted in something else. But um, all of that stuff occasionally gets lumped in with cryptozoology. But, um, yeah, sorry to disappoint, Cliff. I don't really have any good rake commentary at the moment. Oh, no, that's it's fine. It's that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's one of those things I hope isn't real. So I'm kind of glad you don't have
1: anything. Yeah, I don't have really much to bring to the table on that. But, yeah. Uh, now,
0: wouldn't you think the Wendigo is just a Sasquatch?
1: Well, that's kind of what I always thought, but I mean, the, the you know, the if you look at some of the, and apparently, Wendigo has different native interpretations because I recently spoke with a woman from Western Canada, Alberta, who told me that their Wendigo has a dog head; it's more like a dog man type thing or a wolf head. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in the uh, like the Ojibwe and you know some of the. People from Ontario and some of those northern woods, Minnesota, they, they see it as more like a giant – they say it's giant and tall, but it's also – isn't it described as being kind of emaciated and skinny? And it's not always hairy. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. The, the main thing about the Wendigo is that it's just – it's got this insatiable appetite, so it's a cannibal and it's constantly eating things. Um, but I recently did a, a TV series on Travel Channel called In Search of Monsters. It was kind of like a mini monster quest thing. And they were gracious enough to let me appear on nine of the episodes, which were, you know, all of the traditional Bigfoot Yeti, Loch Ness Monster, Chupacabra, so on and so forth. But the 10th episode was going to be on the Wendigo. And I actually took a pass. (laughs) That one particular episode, I said, I, I wasn't trying to poo poo or disrespect the Wendigo. I just didn't feel like I had enough had invested enough research into that subject to really bring anything to the table. So they ultimately found some other investigators that did, that had actually had done some Wendigo research. But um, uh, I kind of always considered it a, you know, just an interpretation of a Sasquatch, you know, honestly, but.
0: Yeah, I would tend to think that's the simplest explanation, but maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't know enough about it.
2: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it sounds like Squatch, and then you get into some of it and you're like it sounds more like dogman and then other stuff it's like it just sounds supernatural or something. But I think for the I think for the most part, I think it's an amalgamation, but it mostly it's uh, Sasquatch, I think.
0: This has been a great conversation. We've covered a lot of topics, but the thing that's burning in my mind is something you said at the beginning of our conversation, Bobo. I think we need to put aside the cryptid thing for a minute and skip over to one of my uh, favorite segments that's new on the show here, Bobo's Storytime.
2: Well, gather around. It's Bobo's Storytime.
1: description of felonious or criminal activity is being told here strictly for entertainment purposes and is in no way an admission of guilt or even true for that matter. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I mentioned earlier that uh, this whole scooter thing when Vietnam with these two old ladies crossed me across the streets, you know, walked me across the streets, and you said you had a story for us,
2: and I want to hear it. Oh, well, we were in Vietnam, I was thinking, you know, my life's been getting kind of boring. I used to have all these adventures. I just haven't had much happening lately, like, no, death defying or anything like that. And so I wanted to go to Halong Bay, uh, which was northeast of Hanoi on the coast. It was about I think I was about 170 miles away. And they said, do not rent a scooter if you're in Vietnam. That more people die on scooters than all more tourists die on scooters than everything else combined. like skydiving deep sea diving rafting cave exploring and and all that stuff all that stuff combined you're you're more likely to die on a scooter but I I can see why oh yeah it was gnarly so I so I went to the scooter rental place and I got to rent a scooter after
0: you've been cautioned not to
2: yeah so I went I went and rented a scooter (laughs) and you know they didn't have a helmet that fit me they didn't have a helmet big enough so I didn't have a helmet and it started getting kind of bad weather. And I printed out the uh, – no, that's right. It was 150 – it was 155 miles. And when I printed out Google Directions on Google Maps, there was 170 turns. Like you – know, like, and it was all in Vietnamese, the road. You know, so I wasn't – so, much-
0: so your Google Directions – you had more than one turn a mile, and it was all in Vietnamese, and you had to decipher this to get to your destination in a land where you didn't speak the language, and you're riding around on the most dangerous thing in the country, which is a moped.
2: Yep, yeah, I look like a circus bear because it, it, it's this little moped thing, and it, could, well, it was more of a scooter. I think it was a, I think it was a 70cc, so it, it had a little scoot to it. I could get going. It's 30. a
0: motorcycle.
2: Yeah. <laughs> So I could I could get uh I could get easily get thirty five on the downhills maybe forty something, and I'm riding out there. And I was thinking like, okay, it's gonna take X amount of time. Well, it did not take that amount of time. It took way longer because you get to these crazy intersections, and I and I was trying to read the words and and there wasn't even that many like a, a road sign might just be like a piece of plywood nailed to a corner building. <laughs> you know, like I'm trying to find these directions, and I, I'd i ask people, and no one. Once you're out of the city, no one spoke English. I didn't, I didn't come across anybody. And the other thing was that I had a little map from Google Maps, and I'd point to people on the map. And I'd say, "Where?" You know, like doing sign language, or, you know, gesturing. Where are we? No one. This was amazing. No one knew where they were on the map. They had no idea where their town was or what road we were on in relation to about no one used maps there at all. It was mm. crazy. So it, it, ended up taking me, uh, it, and it started, it was for, there it was kind of getting, it rained on me and this and that. So I was wet. And I left, it was, I think it was getting dark around six, six, seven. And I left at like one in the afternoon. I, I didn't get there till 1130 at night. For just frozen was just white knuckling it the whole time had all these cl- just close call, or close call, or close call and it was not a very fun trip at all and i had my big huge backpacking backpack like mountaineering backpack on for like all my for like that's i didn't have a duffel bag or a suitcase i just had all my stuff in this giant backpack so i definitely looked and that's when i was like 300 pounds so i was like this 300 pound guy with a giant backpack on this little scooter, going down the road, and everyone was staring at me and people pointing and laughing once in a while, that kind of stuff. So I get yeah, up. You I, probably looked like those guys in the um,
0: the Guinness Book of World Records, you know, like the fattest twins, yeah, exactly. those guys.
2: Yeah, billion <laughs> <public laughs> McGraw brothers. can with yeah, that, yeah. this boy. Yeah, yeah. So I come. Uh, so I get there. I finally get there. It was just an ordeal. Just an Absolutely, ridiculous. and I signed up for a three-day cruise around How long Bay. They got those, they got those old kind of Chinese junk-looking things, uh, mm-hmm. and they they had like maybe eight eight staterooms, or you know, little you had a little room with a bunk bed in it. And so I was, I went on the boat, and it turned out it was the same cruise. Uh the guy, I guess he tried to explain it to anybody that spoke really poorly English when I booked it. So I did three nights, but it was the same trip over and over like groundhog day, just different. I was, I was the same person with every day was new people. We'd do like an overnight and come back, get a new crew, go do the exact <laughs> same tour. I thought it was gonna be like three days of different stuff, but it was just three days of the same thing, but I had a good time. So after doing three days of groundhog day, same thing over and over. I had to go back and I was dreading the ride back. And I, so it's like, I get, you know, stormy again. I get back on the scooter and I'm riding. And this dump truck ran me off the road. I, I made eye I, I contact with the guy when he was next to me, and he forced me off the road. Like most people there were great. They loved Americans, were super hospitable. I mean, just the nicest people in the world, but there were a few people that did not like Americans. And he ran me off the road on purpose. And uh, I, I went down in the dirt and grass and all that and didn't get hurt. And the, the bike still ran, but it was kind of dented and cracked. And, cracked headlight and all that broken blinker. So I get back on the road and I'm riding again. And then a, a fruit truck came up, a big flatbed truck again, intentionally ran me off the road. And this time I was going full speed. I was like, Oh no. And I, I went, I crashed, flipped over the handlebars, went flying down this hill, landed in rocks and gravel, but landed on that big backpack and slid and got no injuries at all. But the, but the bike, wow. didn't work. yeah. But then the bike didn't work, so I was like, "Oh no!" So I pushed it. Found like there's little, there's 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 houses all along the road, like <clears throat> and shops and that sort of thing. Like every every quarter mile or eighth of a mile, there'd be more dwellings and businesses and that sort of stuff. So, but it took me another two hours to find something that could understand what I was trying to do. I was trying to get back to Hanoi. Put my scooter on it because they had my credit card. So I was. I ended up getting on another uh, some kind of vegetable truck or some flatbed. And I got someone that kind of knew it. Oh, I got on the phone and called Wendy, our guide back in Hanoi. I was finally able to get him on the phone. Then he called and translated for me and said and told him where to go. So I agreed to pay these guys $25 to drive me back to the scooter rental shop. And I just showed up there and... The guy just couldn't believe it. Like, I mean, the thing was just ruined, pretty much. I mean, it—the it, it, you know—the front tire was smashed in, the fender was broken off, headlights shattered, blinker broken. Um, the whole and it was brand new, basically, when I got it. The side was just where it slid through the gravel and rocks was just totally gouged and dented. And uh, yeah, I mean, I really thought I—I I really thought I was going to die because it was just insane. Cause I noticed when it got late at night, there was no more scooters on the road, only cars and trucks. And people were just hauling absolute ass, just flying like going 70, 80, 90 miles out these roads. And there's no street lights. And then, and there's, you know, there's potholes everywhere, like giant potholes. Like so people are swerving around those things. So like, they meant, that, that was the scariest part. You'd see a big pothole in the road ahead. Then you'd try to, you'd have to look back and make sure there was no one going to come up. You, if you, A little foresight, you can see. Okay, they're gonna swerve around that. They're gonna swerve to my side or the to the left side. And everyone. So you, you know, Once I got hip to that, I was like, all right, you're constantly keeping an eye out. But it was the most stressful, unenjoyable adventure I think I've just about ever had. So, how many
0: countries in the world now are you not allowed to rent cars
2: or motorcycles or vehicles (laughs) in general in? <laughs> in first world countries all of them and then in third world countries just vietnam
0: okay well vietnam's kind of a second world country but
2: you know i'm not sure i say it's that's, third right yeah you're right it is second world so i guess yeah, I'm, some, uh, in,
0: indonesia it, was kind of third world i think
2: so yeah that, that's I'm it by. You're, you're absolutely correct vietnam was second world so third
0: world countries you can rent stuff in
2: now still correct
0: Okay, so just, you can adjust your travel plans accordingly then. <laughs> right. <laughs> the good
2: story, uh, man. Thank
0: you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bobo's story time.
2: I always know what, uh, when that happened because it was when that Psy guy, the South Korean pop star, was that song he had with that dance.
1: Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Do you remember what it was called? It was, a cra- it was a craze.
1: I don't remember the name of the song. It was something I probably couldn't pronounce. But, um, yeah, the
2: horse thing. Right, right yeah oh, said about like their version of Beverly Hills or something. It sings about a fashion district. Anyways, I woke up one morning at six am on the boat to about eight or ten Korean girls with the music blasting. They had a huge sound system on this boat, just blasting that song and doing that dance. And I came into breakfast in the galley. And it was just this surreal thing. I'm in Ha Long Bay, which is, Ha Long Bay is that beautiful place that's in the James Bond movie. Like, there's like 2,000 of those island, like rock islands that are tall and skinny with like a jungle on top of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man with the golden gun. Yeah. So I was in that, so yeah. I'm in this most beautiful setting ever on this like converted Chinese junk. that's semi-luxurious for them, for Vietnam, luxurious tour boat, you know? with eight or 10 Korean girls lined up singing doing that dance. And they played it over and over and over for like an hour. And I'm just (laughs) sitting there going, this is the most strangest, strange thing I I think I've ever seen just about.
0: That guy's a national hero. You know, my friend Bob Easton, right? He's in that band Delta Nova and all that jazz. Um, Yeah. Down in LA. He's half Korean and his mom is uh, from South Korea. He is? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And his uh, um, his mom, who again is from South Korea, uh, she would listen to that song when it was popular because he was like this national hero or seen as such, I guess, from what I gather in Korea. Yeah. Well, I guess with that, we'll just call it quits, man. So uh, I think this has been a pretty fun conversation. It's not as great as talking to you in person, of course, Ken. But uh, at least we got together and got this out of the way because we've been trying to schedule this for days and days and days now. So I'm glad it finally happened. It was a good time.
2: Oh, I want to clear something up. Oh, okay. When you first met Lyle Blackburn, did you both already look like that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, that's uh, oh, you're talking about the hat? Or, or
1: the is hat. there something? Well, the general look. Look, what I always tell people about me and Lyle, you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with the term convergent evolution right (laughs) it's when when two species develop very similar adaptations even they follow linear paths of evolution well as lyle and i got to know each other we found out that we really have a lot in common a lot of influences we're we're a year apart but we're basically born our birthdays are 10 days apart 10 days in a year Um, we both played in bands, uh, for years and years. And in fact, he was in Dallas. I was in Houston at the time, but I knew of his band. I'd seen flyers and posters. So I I knew what he looked like. I kind of look like that. There's a guy that looks like me. We never played together. We were kind of in the same circuit, kind of that dark, I guess his band is more kind of like goth punk, uh, rockabilly kind of stuff. And my little Rob Zombie influence, I kind of had that in my music. Um, Lyle and I both grew up. Um, listening to Kiss. That was like our, our our favorite band when we were kids, you know, and we would both like put on the makeup and pretend like we were in Kiss. So that was something we had in common. We were both obsessed with monster movies when we were kids. So, I mean, there's just this whole slew of things, uh, you know, both kind of outdoorsmen growing up. So, you know, this whole slew of influences that just kind of molded us into similar uh, looks, I guess. Um, our personalities, we have some similarities, but also some differences in personality. But... Yeah, I know it's confusing to people. And back in the day when Lyle and I would appear at conferences together, we would coordinate our looks like, OK, are you wearing the black hat? I'll wear a brown hat. What color shirt are you wearing? <laughs> you know, just, which is kind of silly, really, when you think about it. But it was kind of like we were trying to, to make it easier on other people to, uh, to tell us apart. But nowadays we become comfortable enough where we're like, you know, I'm going to show up wearing my hat. You show up wearing your hat and we'll let people kind of sort it out. But, uh, guys, I do have one awesome story. Quick story about Lyle, uh, which I think you'd appreciate. Um, back in 2014, I was invited to be on a panel at Comic-Con in San Diego for this you know, big – it was for a TV show I'd been on. And as I was standing outside of Comic-Con – you know Comic-Con's crazy. Like I forget how many thousands of people are in there, but it's just a mad, madhouse. Oh house. Yeah. But a lot of people cosplaying, dressed up as superheroes and monsters and whatever. Well, as I was standing outside of of uh, Comic Con, waiting to go in, this dude got, walked up to me and he says, "Oh my God, a Lyle Blackburn cosplayer! That's awesome!" <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to tell Lyle that story, and Lyle got a big, you know, it's been quite an honor to, because someone's cosplaying you at Comic Con. So Lyle, Lyle <laughs> thought that. Was- that was pretty funny. So
2: yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs>
1: and of course, ah. I have people people come up to me all the time and say, "Man, I really love the Boggy Creek book. It's one of my favorite <laughs> books." And where whereas I used to kind of just explain, it, you know, away, I, now I just kind of ex- graciously accept. Well, thank you. I put a lot of work into that one, and you know, so you know, <laughs> all, I guess what I'm trying to say is that nowadays, Lyle and I are both claiming each other's um, accomplishments on a regular basis. So it's it's. Becoming confusing again, but um.
0: well, you, you both have enough to go around. That's very generous of you. <laughs> That's so funny, man.
1: Glad, glad we cleared that one up, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now that we've cleared that up, let's get going. We have a whole day off ahead of me, man. I want to go use it. But thanks a lot for coming on the show. Uh, again, next time you have any sort of thing out that you want to push or let other people know about just let us know. You're always welcome back on Big Put and Beyond.
1: All right. Guys, much appreciated. Uh, you two guys are both a uh, huge inspiration, uh, not only to myself, but many other investigators. And you're, you're both just really good down-to-earth guys, too. Really good dudes. And I, I enjoy hanging out with you in person. And thanks again for having me on your show.
2: Likewise. Anytime, Thank you.
1: All right, Bobo, take us out.
2: Okay, Ken. So, people, this is Ken Gearhart. He's got several books out. Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts. In terms of flying humanoids, he's got, he covers the crypto world pretty well. So if you want to hear more or learn more, check out his uh, his books, are great. And do you have a podcast or anything, Lyle? I mean,
1: can't. Lyle? Have... <laughs> it's happening already. What a dick. Uh, ask... <laughs> oh, Lyle, I get it. was a joke. Okay. Um, well, that was a joke. <laughs> um, I don't have a podcast or... No, uh currently I have a website, kengearhard.com. And I've got a YouTube channel that I'm hoping to put some content on this year. So, um, but yeah, I'm on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the whole shebang. So thanks guys.
2: Thank Much you. I mean, God, that's not, I'm not joking. That's just, I'm messing up. Sorry about that. Ken. No,
1: it, it's, it's all good, man. <laughs> Here's wishing both of you a, a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday and uh, also your listeners out there. Hope everyone has a, a wonderful
2: vacation and holiday season.
1: All right. Thanks, Ken. All right. Take care, guys. We'll talk soon.
2: Okay, bye. Bye. Well, that's another great episode we just completed with Ken Gerhardt. Thanks so much to him, and thank you all for listening. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and keep it squatchy.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes.